Hey everybody and welcome once again to Pottywood, the show where we talk about movies with the people who make movies. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... Well, I'm about to start regretting this show and starting the way we have because I've only just realised looking at my lovely desk area that I do not have a drink present. This is going to be a ride and a half. Mm, yes. But yes, uh, my name is Andrew Roger Carson, by the way. I am the person who co-hosts this show with the lovely and delicious Steve Hester. Yes, who actually has a drink in front of him. Mm, oh yes, tasty, tasty beer. Mm. Mm. Mm, so, so lovely and refreshing. <laughs> Well, it's um, it's been an interesting week for new releases. We've seen the trailers land for the new Avatar movie, for Thor, Love and Thunder. Yeah, so it looks like the blockbusters, or at least sequel blockbusters, are going to be here in full force over the next 12 months. Yes, but can you actually believe Top Gun Maverick is going to be upon us? It's It's almost like you've waited 10 years... On top of 30 years <laughs> since you first saw the trailer for this movie. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely saw the trailer for that movie. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, I went to see... Uh, yes, I went to see uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it was, it was a great movie. But surprisingly, at the beginning, during the trailers, they showed a five-minute scene from Top Gun Maverick. And it had the added bonus of being in a Dolby cinema. So I was in my nice recliner. I had my drink. I was there and my seat was rumbling like you could not believe. It was a thing of beauty. And speaking of things of beauty, Steve. Oh, well done. Uh, Yeah. Well, round of applause there. Yes. Great segue. Uh, Speaking of beauty, it is time to look at what's in the box from last week, which was Sam Mendes' 1999, not 1999 and this is one of those movies where even if you haven't actually seen it, you will have seen the pastiches of it. You will see the parodies of it. And without a word of a lie, uh, myself and my girlfriend have been rewatching Family Guy. And I know I bring this up a lot and because the, they parodied just everything to hell. But uh, last night I got into bed and uh, my girlfriend was watching Family Guy. An episode came on where they were parodying the uh the cheerleader scene right okay um but instead of her opening her blouse to the being loads of rose petals coming out it was uh chicken legs and okay. it kind of kind of flew around peter griffin's head and into his mouth so yeah you've got this man who's trying to get his life back on track and you've also got his daughter played by thora birch 
um, who doesn't appear to be acting anymore, although I did hear that that was partially down to her dad being just monstrously overbearing. And it's all about uh, her relationship as well with her new next-door neighbour, who's a drug dealer and who's obsessed with being a video diarist and whose father is uh, an ex-military man. And the whole thing is about recognising what you need out of life to actually make you happy versus what the world says that you should have. Because the world says you should have this house, you should have this job, you should have this family, you should have this couch, you should have this in your front room, you should have these in your front garden, when in reality all you really need is just yourself and and your own inner peace to guide you through. At least that's what I was taking away from it. Uh, and you've got a wonderful supporting cast in uh, uh You've got a, a, a nice little cameo from one of my favourite people, Scott Bakula. Yep. Of uh, Quantum Leap and Enterprise and NCIS Nyarlands. At least I think it's Nyarlands. <laughs> Nyarlands. Nyarlands. And the whole thing comes to this crescendo towards the end where he is... Spoilers! Although it's not really a spoiler because it's mentioned within the first five minutes. When he dies, uh, he is killed by the next door neighbour um, who is effectively a, uh, a closeted homosexual and has, has kind of misconstrued what's been going on between Lester and his son Ricky who Lester's been buying pot from him but he thinks that the two of them are having an affair and that, I think for me personally, was the weakest point in the film. Because it felt like it was almost film schooly. Like really, yeah. Okay. Like there's lots of it which is brilliant. I uh, taking taking everything which has happened uh, with Kevin Spacey out of the equation. I'm not. Yes. I'm not. I, I don't. I don't want to address everything that's happened. No. But I will say this: Kevin Spacey is a really good actor. Yes, he is. And it comes across in spades, and the dynamic that he's got with Annette Benning is brilliant in its horribleness with this hideous marriage that's going on. Um, and he carries the film superbly. And there's wonderful moments of character development as he starts to grow and and emerge from this cocoon of middle-aged suburbanite boredom that he's been in for ages. But this uh, sort of Damocles that's hanging over the whole thing, where you know he's going to die, it just kind of feels like it is like out of out out of like like a, a film school thing. Like like famously, the original ending to the movie Clerks had uh, Dante being shot. Yes, and then uh, one of the producers said, "No, no, no, take it out." That kind of felt like it needed to happen here. The fact that he was murdered didn't feel like it belonged there really it, it, i i was expecting it to be more like oh he has a heart attack they're not going to go down the murder route the murder route's going to be cheap he's going to be like a fake out and you're going to think he's going to get murdered but no it was that and it just it didn't kind of fit right with me but did you know that actually in the uh, original script actually kevin spacey was supposed to go through with the sex scene with mina savari's character mm. And they decided, kind of eleventh hour. It's like, yeah, no. I, w- I wonder if the the feedback from Kirsten Dunst when the role was offered to her 
<laughs> maybe kind of got back to all of the males on that movie where yeah. she was just like, kiss Kevin Spacey? Uh, it's you know? it, it, it's an uncomfortable scene. And it, it, you do kind of almost feel a little bit shortchanged by it insofar as this is what he's been after throughout the whole movie. But at the same time, you're also extremely glad that nothing happens. Yeah, I mean, I think I look at it at the way that it was shot and it kind of really adds to that layer of the story, the, the character arc. You know, this is a person obsessed by something he feels he wants and it's that moment where he suddenly just realises who he is, how old mm-hmm. he is, you know, where he is at his point in life. And, you know, it's tragically just a couple of seconds before his life comes to an end over, you know, Chris Cooper's character. And Chris Cooper is one of my favourite actors of all time. And he is absolutely amazing in this movie. You know, and this is another character who is denying what he really wants or who he really is. Yeah. You know, and and it's that kind of mirror image to the Kevin Spacey character. And I really kind of like that. You know, and um, when you look at this, I mean, this was Sam Mendes' first movie. You know, so this was a job given to him by... Steven Spielberg. Spielberg had read the script and said, I don't want to change a word of this script. And he personally recommended Sam Mendes for the job. And Sam Mendes, he's now one of the, you know, he's one of the best filmmakers out there. Mm -hmm. 1917, Road to Perdition, Skyfall. He's even done a Bond movie, for God's sake. You know, and uh, I'll also throw Revolutionary Road in there because that is definitely worth seeing. Yeah, I'm I'm not a fan of Skyfall, but that's a different story for another time. Um, It's actually quite good of you to pick up on the fact that denial, and I think now that you've mentioned it, that's a really, really good anchor point for a lot of the characters. Yes. Because they're either denying something that they were, or they're trying to deny other people from having something. Well, yeah, I mean, look at the tagline for the movie, and it's even written on Kevin Spacey's uh, uh, in his office, look closer. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what this movie is really all about. It's like peeling away the falseness of it, the the paint job and everyone's life. And it was so well cast, this movie. And, you know, a lot of people were doing it for less than their usual rate. So it was almost kind of a, an independent movie passion project for a lot of people. And who really came out of it strong is Thora Birch. I mean, she was actually 17 years old at the time, uh, doing her first topless scene at 17 years old. Child labor representatives were on set constantly. Mm-hmm. And uh, her parents were okay with it because it fit in with the story. And um, the thing that I really like, you kind of look at the humor of this movie because you can tell that so many of the moments were unscripted and they were. And it makes it so much better. You know, you can tell these people were actually having fun. There's the scene with Kevin Spacey and Wes Bentley getting stoned outside of, you know, his wife's business party. Yeah, where they're talking about reanimator. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, and they genuinely got the giggles. You can tell by Wes Bentley's face that it is, you know, completely, we're just going with it. We're, we've completely you know, lost it. And you've got a fantastic little turn from Peter Gallagher in there mm. uh, as uh, the real estate king. <laughs> yeah, they obviously couldn't afford any decent uh, grey hair paint, so they just went down to the local joke shop and got some of that grey hair spray. <laughs> That you usually put in your head if you're going to a fancy dress party. Uh, Wes Bentley, actually, is a really good turn in this. Yeah, he is. And he was kind of a newcomer as well. So I think this may have been his actual first feature 
I can't remember seeing him in anything before it. But just in getting back to Peter Gallagher, uh, I actually I actually met Peter Gallagher in L.A. on the set of Grace and Frankie. Right. So I was there meeting Martin Sheen and uh, the other people involved in it. Sam Waterston was there. And it was a great day. And we're all outside. I'm talking there with Martin and, and Ramon. And out of nowhere, Peter Gallagher just walks up and he's like, hey, Martin, and this and that. And uh, we're just like, wow. And uh, a couple of seconds beforehand... Ramon got my picture with Martin. Hmm, I've seen it, yeah. There's a security guard out there. And uh, when Peter Gallagher walks up, the security guard just says, hey, listen, could I ask a big favor and and get a picture with you guys? And Martin and Peter and everyone, oh, yeah, sure, sure. And uh, he says, oh, would you mind taking it? And he hands me his camera. And I'm like, shit, this is a picture I would have wanted. Yeah. But Peter Gallagher is one of the nicest guys and just the, the small exchanges that I had with him, really nice guy. And as he, he walked away, Martin just said, is that the most handsome guy you've ever seen in your life? <laughs> and it's true. He is just this really like handsome guy and it just radiates off him. Um, but Peter Gallagher, every time I see him in something now, it's like, wow, that, that guy is just a really cool guy. And he's got a, a great turn and just... The comic timing with him and Annette Benning in this is just spot on. Perfect. Yeah, there's a lot of dark humor in the movie, and to, to be fair, at times it actually kind of reminded me a little bit of The Big Lebowski. I don't know if it was yeah. the the time period that it was shot in, so there were kind of may have been like echoing a little bit of the styles, um, but there was that kind of that undercurrent of this darkness, but and everyone kind of riding it with a smile on their face which was which was lovely to watch yeah i mean uh, the the top line of people from uh, kevin spacey who who carries this movie on his back and it's so weird because originally before kevin spacey took that role chevy chase was approached for that role who <laughs> turned it down cuz he only did, wanted to do family movies at that point and tom hanks was also approached on it as well and it wouldn't have worked. It would no. not have worked uh, with those two people. And it's hard to say with Tom Hanks that, you know, nothing would work with Tom Hanks. I think it's because he's a bit too clean cut. Yeah. And maybe that's what they're going for. Maybe they thought, um, oh, you know, um, Kevin Spacey's a real clean cut actor. Maybe not in his personal life, but, you know, it's he's no. a clean cut actor. Um, other than that, the soundtrack to this is brilliant. You've got some great Bill Withers music in there, which is always a plus for me. Mm-hmm. You have Conrad Hall cinematography, which is beautiful to look at. It, it really does capture it. And this also has bum, 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 some factoids. Go on, hit us with the factoids. Well, this was actually the first movie from DreamWorks to win Best Picture at the Oscars. And a lot of people think, didn't Save It Private Ryan? Well, Save It Private Ryan was actually a co-production with Paramount. Okay. This almost became the fourth movie in Oscar history to win the Big Five. So that's uh, direction, script, best picture. Best actor and best actress. All right. And Annette Benning's loss prevented it from joining that, which is a shame because she was phenomenal in mm. this. I don't think I've seen her any better. Uh, than what she was in this role. Maybe in The Grifters. I like doing that. Now, take this in mind. This was the first ever film to win Best Picture at the Oscars, the Producers Guild, the BAFTAs, the Critics' Choice, and the Golden Globes. Wow. Exactly. So, American Beauty. 
I still think it's a classic. I love it, especially as I'm now reaching middle age. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, now that both of us are in our early 40s, it does kind of take on a bit of a new meaning. Yes, it makes you more conscious of how long you're in the shower now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, you had to bring that scene up, didn't you? Oh, dear. <laughs> yes, I, I love the way that um, I think it was at the Oscars um, in 2000 when Billy Crystal was hosting and he did his usual video skit at the beginning. And they did a play on Psycho where Billy Crystal's in the shower and the curtain pulls back and it's Kevin Spacey. What are you doing in my shower? Would you like to use my shampoo? <laughs> That's actually quite a good impression. Oh, well, you know, I, I try my best. Uh, so, I take it you enjoyed American Beauty. I did. I did. Like I say, I'm not too thrilled with the final few moments. Um, I, I thought that the death was... It, it just seemed a bit... Um, oh, we need to do something shocking and dramatic for the conclusion. But um, as far as the rest of the movie goes, I thought he was really well acted. The uh, the soundtrack, Thomas Newman's score was wonderful. And it's... I, I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great film. So yes, that is American Beauty. That is what's in the box uh, review for this week. And we seek nicely into our anniversary section. We watch them again all of the time or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. You know, you could cut 30 seconds out of that song and our show would not be that long. <laughs> That's where most of the runtime goes, it's that song. You guys aren't even listening to the original version which Neil did, which is a good, like, what, another 30 seconds as well? <laughs> Something so, like that, uh, yeah. I know. It was, it was good, it was just too long. That's my fault, I wrote the damn thing. Alright, um, anniversaries for this week, we have four, 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 the magic four. And can you believe, Steve? Yes. 40 years ago, oof, brace yourself. Oh dear. This is where we always feel extremely old. What? Four, <laughs> 40 years ago this week, Conan the Barbarian was released. You know, I've not seen any of the Conan films. Oh, well, that's that one then. Let's move on to the next. <laughs> no, no, okay. Uh, Conan the Barbarian, uh, directed by uh, the madman himself, John Milius. Uh, I say madman, I think he's just incredibly eccentric and has a, a real knowledge of handguns. You may know the name John Milius from, uh, if you're a bit older, maybe you know him as the writer of Jeremiah Johnson. Uh, you may also know him as the writer of Apocalypse Now or Red Dawn, the original version of Red Dawn. But uh, John Milius was also a director as well. Uh, prior to Conan, he did the surfing movie uh, Big Wednesday with Gary Busey and Jan Michael Vincent. Mm -hmm. But Conan the Barbarian... Gave us one of the biggest things to ever hit motion pictures. Is this uh, Arnold's weapon? <laughs> yes, it is the Schwarzenegger. Uh, and he was the first and only choice for Conan. Mm. And it's not hard to understand why, because prior to this, I think he'd only really done maybe Hercules in New York. and Yeah, and Pumping Iron. Oh, Pumping Iron. Pumping, Pumping Iron, Iron was the main thing yeah. that got him cast. But he'd appeared in movies like Stay Hungry and The Long Goodbye. He was in The Long Goodbye as a bodyguard. So he had these really small kind of roles here. If I'm right, this was shot just... It's either just before or just after Terminator. Just before. Just before, yeah. So this was 1982. Terminator was 1984. Yeah. So Terminator was his kind of natural follow-on, I guess. 
But yeah, th- this was the movie where Arnie suddenly became the businessman and he got 5% of the profits of this movie. And it was a hit. Because, I mean, Arnie, came, when he came to the US, he, he was already a millionaire. Because yeah. that's, that's what everyone kind of thinks. They look at Arnold, they're always a big, dumb action guy and always was. No, no, he was already a shrewd businessman before he landed in the States. So if he could, if he could find the angle to try and make a little bit of money here and there, he was going to do it. So, yeah, it makes no surprise to me whatsoever that he got a nice little tidy back end off this one. It's true. And the movie is a classic. You know, you've got the voice of Darth Vader himself, James Earl Jones, playing the bad guy. But the the things that I always know about this that some are a bit weird. I would never have actually placed Oliver Stone as the writer of this movie. No. Which it's it's very weird looking back at it because I don't think I've ever seen Oliver Stone really do anything that's kind of been fantasy based. Apart from JFK. <laughs> oh. 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 Sorcerer Milk Table Nine. Meow. Yes. <laughs> but not only did he write the script but he actually asked Ridley Scott to direct it originally okay I can can see that word for that uh, that early Ridley style where before he just started doing you know movies that kind of look like everyone else's but back in the day Ridley's Mm. movies looked like you know like no one else's movies you know you look at the duelists and Blade Runner and Alien obviously uh, an alien, of course. You know, yeah. he was a master of style. So I could see where he's going with it. But Ridley uh, declined, obviously, because he was probably doing Blade Runner around the same time as well. And uh, I think we would much rather have Blade Runner than Ridley Scott Conan movie. Yes. Now, on a, on a very brief side note, before you carry on, uh, my, my girlfriend has been studying to become a nurse and she was at the, the colonoscopy uh, department today. Uh, just just observing um and she actually said that watching a uh, watching the inside of a colon was like looking at the the curved tunnels in the alien films <laughs> so take that as you will i'm not saying that everything that hr giga designed had to do exclusively with sex but uh, yeah just take that as you will <laughs> yes i will no longer be going to his christmas parties no as you were just in case yes um Everyone knows the score from Conan the Barbarian because the score is possibly the most used temp track in post-production history. So the amount of movies that still use the Conan the Barbarian score as a temporary track is uh, it's still imprinted today. And that score has also been featured in more commercials than any other movie score. I think I know the one because, like I say, I've not seen it. It's weird because it... Reminds me, like the opening strings of it remind me of Total Recalls. Uh, and uh, this also set a uh, record, but not at the box office. There is a scene in this movie when James Earl Jones points to um, a woman, I think one of the concubines that's going to be sacrificed, and she jumps to her death in the scene. And that jump actually set a woman's free fall record of 182 feet by stuntwoman Corrie Jansen. Nice. Well, props to her. Yeah, so there you go. And um, (laughs) it it was also probably not the safest movie to work on either. And I think you can ask Arnie about that when you talk to him. You know, you see him out on the street. Uh, For one, he had a live vulture actually pecking at his body during his crucifixion scene. And the dogs that were chasing him 
were not actually safe dogs. They were actually vicious dogs that had even bitten their owner. So when he's being chased by these dogs, the look of fear on Conan's face is a genuine look of fear. Arnie was criticised for his performance in this movie. And, and to be honest, you know, this was his first actual speaking role where they used his real voice outside of a documentary, I guess. In Hercules in New York, he was very badly dubbed in a way that Cockney dubbing experts of Chinese movies would be proud. Yes, and if you don't know what we're talking about, then just pay attention to the rest of our interview with Cyrus and Ethan coming up later. Yes, exactly. See, good segue. Yes. Um, Standout for this movie, Sandal Bergman. She was the business in this movie. Absolutely stunning Amazon. She is absolutely brilliant. I don't think she's ever been as good as she has been in this movie. Don't believe me? Check out Conan the Barbarian. That is 40 years old this week. Wonderful. Right. That's a good one to start off with. So what have we got next? <laughs> well, I'd like to say we continue on an even path, but no, this roller coaster is going down okay. <laughs> vertically. 35 years ago this week, Steve, a movie by the name of Ishtar was released. Oh, one, two, three, four, three, two, three, four. <laughs> they are the messengers from God. You've not seen this, have you? No, I've just seen the trailer. (laughs) (laughs) I think maybe most people have only seen the trailer. Um, Wow. Where to start with Ishtar? Okay, this this has a major story that I'd love to see a documentary made on this, to be honest. Uh, It was directed by uh, the comedy actress Elaine May, who, you know, she was an actress. You maybe have seen her in... Uh, the movie with Walter Matthau and New Leaf, which is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Absolutely amazing. She steals an entire movie from Walter Matthau. Uh, she was also in the Woody Allen movie Small Time Crooks that I remember. And she was also a writer of uh, the brilliant John Travolta presidential movie Primary Colors, which you should check out if you've not seen it. And this was her first foray into directing. And a lot of the promotion was on that because she was joining the very elite kind of directing world that was mainly occupied by men, mm-hmm. especially in the Hollywood cycles. I think maybe you only had Amy Heckling and Catherine Bigelow was just about starting out with Near Dark around that time. So there wasn't a lot of big women director names and there was a lot being made about it. Um, but unfortunately, it's now known as one of those movies that is one of the biggest losses of all time. But in truth, it's not actually when you compare it to movies that have come out since. Let's put this in perspective. Martin Scorsese has gone on record to say that this is actually one of his favourite movies. Okay. Uh, Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright have also professed their love for this movie as well. So, okay, you've seen it, have you? Yes, I have. Yes. Is it as bad as everyone says it is? I'm actually going to say no. I think the kind of stories around it have kind of cast this shadow over the movie. I've been entertained watching it. I didn't turn it off. And trust me, I turn a lot of movies off when I'm bored nowadays. Um, But this movie is responsible for coining the term movie jail. Now, Uh, if you know what movie jail is, it's basically Mm -hmm. if uh, a director makes a movie that is that bad that they never get considered or given the opportunity to direct a movie again. And unfortunately... Ghostbusters 2016! You wait, mate. You wait. That's going to come out of the box one day. But uh, this was in relation to Elaine May. May has never directed another movie following this. But she did 
get uh, it was either an Oscar nomination or an Oscar win for writing the script for Primary Colors, which kind of reestablished her uh, back into the mainstream. But she had quite a few bad years. Um, also, in more recent years, the stars Warren Beatty, Dustin Hoffman, and the late Charles Grodin. They actually did defend the film and they have stated that the film's failure was mainly down to the production and budgetary problems that were leaked to the press. And that was by the studio head of Columbia at the time, David Putnam, who was on bad terms with Warren Beatty and with Dustin Hoffman at the same time. They basically think that he was basically burying that movie. Torpedoing it just as revenge. Yeah, but to be honest, I mean, Warren Beatty didn't help himself. Him and Elaine May, they were arguing a lot off camera and especially in the editing room. Apparently, things got incredibly heated at one point to where Elaine May apparently abandoned the set for a few hours and Warren Beatty ended up reporting it to Columbia, who said, we'll fire her for you, but uh, we want you to take over as a director. And I think Warren Beatty didn't want to take over as director because he saw this really as a favour to Elaine May to, for him to actually do the movie. He wanted off the movie more than anything. So BT basically didn't want to direct. He tells the people at Columbia, okay, well, if you fire Elaine May, then me and Dustin Hoffman are going to walk. Basically, what did they ended up doing? They shot everything twice. So they shot Elaine May's way and Warren Beatty's way, which ended up doubling the budget. Yeah, I can see that doing a lot of damage to yeah. a film's budget. But Elaine May didn't exactly help herself, I don't think. I mean, she apparently she shot 108 hours of raw footage for what would become a 107-minute movie. Okay, at a budget of $55 million in the end, and it only made $14 million at the box office. Now, it did end up debuting at number one. So it did come out at number one for a week. But unfortunately, it was released the week before Beverly Hills Cop 2, the most anticipated sequel of that year. Which... Curse you, John Ashton! Yes. John, we know it's your fault. It wasn't even the worst film of that year. Ryan O'Neill's movie, Tough Guys Don't Dance, was the worst movie of 1987. You don't believe me? Watch it. Okay. Um, a lot of people can pin the blame on Elaine May or her inexperience or whatever. But I'm sorry, Warren Beatty wasn't exactly firing on all cylinders in this movie either. He hadn't made a movie in a number of years. Dustin Hoffman hadn't made a couple of movies in a couple of years. I think since Tootsie. I think Tootsie was the last thing he did. Uh, so this was kind of a, a comeback for both of them after this kind of absence. Hoffman was doing Death of a Salesman, I think, on Broadway or whatever. But uh, it does have one positive. Uh, the failure of this film made Coca-Cola completely rethink entering the movie business and selling off their Sony <laughs> sh- Well, selling off their Columbia shares. Are you sure they actually sold them off? Because they are all over Sony movies at the moment. Oh, I think they've maybe got a little bit of thing there. A little know, bit? I'm, yeah. Jesus. It's 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 the Coke machines in double team. That's what it is. Yeah. See, if it was Pepsi, it'd be another thing. No, uh, Ishtar, I'm, I'm going to say it's... Yeah, it's not a great movie. But I don't think it's as bad as, you know, some films that have come out that have completely tanked, say, like John Carter, which, what, was 300 million and probably made about 17 million, <laughs> something yeah. like that. There's been a lot of bigger duds, including The Matrix Resurrections. You know, there's a lot of bad movies. This is not acted bad. It's not really shot bad. It's just 
it's just a film. Right? It's just a movie. It's it's just a, a movie in the shuffle of other movies. Nothing really stands out about it. All right. So we've started high, and now we seem to be sliding down a bit. So what have we got for number three? Well, this one is the kind of Libra scale of movies for me. Okay. Um, because it's a movie I know is bad, but at the same time, I've got a bit of a fascination with it to the point where it's like, I actually enjoy watching this movie uh, in the same way that Battle Los Angeles was. Can you believe, Steve, 10 years ago this week, mm-hmm. uh, the movie Battleship was released? Uh, okay. Um, mm. Now, you've seen this movie, right? I haven't, no. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> Sometimes you really do need to watch some movies. <laughs> well, I had, I had better things to do in my time, like going to the toilet. This was a game, well, a video game game. No, well, it, it was wasn't a even a video game, it was a board game. game. Was a board game. Th- there was a video game of it, alright, I thought at least you would have like tagged onto that. No, there all was right, a video ba- game of it after the film came out. Are you saying there wasn't like an older version on like a Commodore 64 well, of Battleship? There might have been, just in the same way as that the, there was a version of Monopoly. You know, it's it doesn't make it based on a video game. It's based on a... But it's Battleship, for God's sake. It's one of those movies that is just... Um, well, Universal obviously sunk a lot of money into this Battleship. Uh, sunk being the word, because I don't think it made uh, a lot of money back. Uh, but this was directed by Peter Berg, uh, an actor turned director and producer uh, for his acting... You may know him as a regular on Chicago Hope. You may have seen him in the movie Very Bad Things with Cameron Diaz and Christian Slater. You may have seen him in a small bit part in Collateral as well. Uh, And following this, he has directed other movies. He directed Lone Survivor, which is a great movie uh, with Mark Wahlberg, which you probably haven't seen either, Steve. No, although uh, briefly I was thinking of Designated Survivor, but that's the TV series. Anyway, That's that's the TV series. Yeah, Uh, But I know... Uh, Peter Berg actually ends up directing quite a lot of these uh, military or naval type movies because he did a movie called The Kingdom that starred Jamie Foxx and Jennifer Garner in 2007 as well. Uh, But Battleship, um, based on the Milton Bradley game, Mm -hmm. Battleship, which I think only one of my friends ever had, a co-production of Hasbro, as Hasbro were getting into the movies with mixed and varying results was i think gi joe line was a hasbro is that right that was hasbro transformers was hasbro right so Um, they they get it right in some respects yeah i just can't understand why battleship well i mean sometimes you can turn a game into a film like we mentioned the other week when we did get it freshed clue no that's 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 brilliant you know you've you've got all the basic elements of it and it becomes a film which works yeah but clue had clue is a game with a narrative so of course that's going to work it's based off a narrative you know in in that same respect you could make a saw movie out of kaplunk (laughs) (laughs) i had a mouthful of drink then (laughs) (laughs) so you know but it's it's battleship. It's just two people saying numbers to each other. All I can know? think of right now is, hello, detective, I want to play a game. B5. Yes. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> that scene in the Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey with Death playing yeah. battleship with them. Um, the great thing about it, it has that Steve Jablonski score. And Steve Jablonski is like the... Um, oh, who's the guy who did the Metal Gear Solid music? 
Oh, Harry Gregson, Gregson Williams. Williams, yeah. Yes, and I, I love that kind of... They're really good action scores, and this works. This movie, unfortunately, was the start of Taylor Kitsch's three-movie run of despair, as I call it. It's like having, in the course of just two years, three movies tank so badly that your career now as a leading person is completely gone. So you've got this and you've got John Carter. What was the third one? third one was, funnily enough, our old friend Oliver Stone, his movie called Savages. Right. Uh, so all three of them within a year, actually, wow. 2011, 2012. All of them underperformed. He was the lead in all three of them. So I think the John Carter one was the one that did the most damage. And Battleship came out just after it, I believe. So I think it went John Carter, Battleship, and then Savages. This movie has some really bizarre acting choices to the point where I'm thinking that maybe they were just miscast. Or I think maybe just these people thought, no one gives a shit about the acting in this. I mean, you've got some great talent in it. It's not the kind of movie that you would put some really, really high-level actors into. You might you might have one. Like, I think Liam Neeson's in this, is he? Yeah, and he's terrible in it. Yeah, he he just knew to turn up on set, get a paycheck, and go home. He, yeah, he, he was doing the Bruce Willis, but in a bigger budget movie. That was you it. Know. Yes. I'm a ship captain. Hello. We're about yes. to investigate the aliens. Yes. D7. <laughs> That's it. He's just there reading out the numbers. D7. F. U. <laughs> That's to my agent. Yeah. Um, Rihanna, I mean, this was Rihanna's big debut. And, you know, she gives it the try, but she she wasn't there yet. And I, I don't know what kind of director Peter Berg is. You know, he, he has some amazing movies and he has some misfires, as everyone does. Um, I, I don't think Rihanna really shone in this. And I think she got a lot of the, she's the worst actress in it. She was just starting out. Let's Let's give her her fair due, like Arnie was in Conan. She was the big draw. You know when you get those big blockbuster movies and suddenly they're bringing someone from another medium like a singer or someone like that into an yeah. actual movie role? And it's that kind of draw. Like, ooh, this will bring in the youth demographic who... Hey, all those but, teenage kids, they like Rihanna. Yes. Let's get her in our movie. That's yes. it. That's it, my dear. You're going to be a star. Yes. All those kids singing, rude boy, can you get it up? They'll love Battleship. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um... But yeah, uh, as I mentioned, Liam Neeson uh, is not great in it. But I think the worst, and I feel so sorry uh, for this actress, there's an actress by the name of Brooklyn Decker uh, who got the role of basically Taylor Kitsch's girlfriend. And, you know, she she's mucking in there and doing her bit. But it, it's like the Michael Bay eye candy model type person that they bring in. Um, but yeah, I don't know where the blame falls for it, but... At the end of the day, it's a movie about battleships fighting aliens. And you get what you pay for. Pretty much. Uh, but I actually kind of enjoy it. <laughs> I really do enjoy it because it is so ridiculous. And there's the enjoyment factor of it. So, yes, I do own a copy of Battleship. And I would actually recommend it. Look, if you, if you just want a couple of hours to pass, rainy afternoon, the kids are bored and they just want something that's really loud and and full of CGI... Chuck it on. Battleship. Ten years old this week. All right. 
Ah, uh, well, in that case, that leads us very nicely onto our last entry. Oh, yes. I saved this one especially for you. Is the number four a number two? Well, I don't know how shit it is, you know. <clears throat> oh, you mean, is it an episode two? Uh-oh. Is it an attack of the clones? Ah! Yes. Can you believe it's 20 years ago? Bloody hell. Now we feel old. I was just playing Star Wars Battlefront on the very levels yesterday and thinking, this feels so fresh until I came onto this show today. Yes. Now, you'd be very surprised if I said that I hadn't seen this one. I have. (laughs) I went to I'd midnight. I went to a midnight showing of this uh, in Manchester, and it, it, yeah, it was it was better than the Phantom Menace. Lots of people think that it's worse. I, I it can't be worse than the Phantom Menace. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's, that's oh, in a nutshell. Right, this is this is not one of the best Star Wars movies. Right, no. I'm sorry. I went on a date to see this, and. Um, there wasn't a second date, was there? <laughs> there wasn't, no. There wasn't. And the thing is, it, it wasn't even my choice. She wanted to go and see it. Um, Kate Mooney. Hi, Kate. Um, directed by George Lucas. And I think that's where we start to go wrong here, really. Yeah. Um, director of Star Wars A New Hope. All-time classic. Mm-hmm. Also director of THX 1138. Another classic. American, American Graffiti. Graffiti. Another classic. Writer of Raiders of the Lost Ark. One of the greatest adventure stories of all time. Attack of the Clones is a hard slog to get through. Yeah, especially when you've got some of the most cringingly embarrassing romance, and I can't put that in as large enough inverted commas as possible. I call it romance. Yeah. You're in my very soul from the moment I laid eyes on you. I hate sand. It's cold and coarse and gets everywhere. It's, oh God, nobody talks like this, George. Nobody. And that whole C-3PO droid factory sequence where he Oh, just, the reshoots, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. The droid factory bit, I don't actually mind. I think it's an, you know, it's an interesting little set piece, but everything that C-3PO is doing is there. It's just the worst cringingly bad comedy. Also, in inverted commas. It also was the first time Yoda was done fully CGI. Mm, thankfully, after the hideous puppet. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I kind of like the puppet, really. No, no, the, I'm a the realist. Pu- the puppet that they used in Empire and uh, Return of the Jedi that looked great. The one that they used in Phantom Menace was boss-eyed for a start-off. It, it, it was, it was just cross-eyed and looked hideous. So as soon as they were able to go back and change that. For a CGI Yoda. That, that that was the one time that George Lucas has gone back to his old stuff and actually improved on it. Cataracts, have I? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Got but... kicked in the head by a donkey, I did. <laughs> <laughs> can't stop focusing on tip of nose, I can't. Yes. yes. Also, I mean, not a single clone trooper suit in this movie was actually built. They're all CGI. Yeah. Same goes for uh, Avenger the Sith as well. Yeah. And, and speaking of which, there's a there's a shot of the clones as Obi Wan's going through Kamino, and there's uh, like slightly more grown up clones where they don't quite look like Tamara Morrison. 
It's obviously yeah. a different actor. And they're eating. There is nothing in any of the dishes. And it's so obvious that there's nothing in any of the dishes. <laughs> oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. I mean, one thing you'd say about this, at least they cut Jar Jar down. But he is still annoying in the scenes that mm-hmm. he was left in. No, and I think that was the backlash of the Phantom Menace. They were like, who the f*** is this? Judge of it. I remember that backlash. Everyone was like, oh, burn the movie. Burn it. Judge of Binks. It's like, all the Ewoks were there were like, phew, it's no longer on us. The worst thing about that is you watch um, Ahmed Best did behind the scenes stuff for The Phantom Menace, and he's putting his heart and his soul into it. He really believes he's doing this wonderful uh, character acting bit, and the character's going to be great. Oh, I feel so bad for him when everything just came back in and everyone was basically saying, Oh, you! You're terrible! The character's terrible! You all should die! Burn in hell! It's like, Jesus, it's just a frog alien. Calm yourself. (laughs) Did you know that NSYNC got cut out of this movie? Thankfully. Yes, they apparently played Jedi's. And who the f*** thought that idea up? It's got to be one of George Lucas's kids. I'm sorry, is George Lucas a secret NSYNC fan? I don't know. Can you imagine him driving along Skywalker Ranch in his little golf cart, little radio playing, (laughs) it's gonna be me. I'd say it's gotta be me. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that reminds me, I gotta get in touch with these, get these guys in the movie. Me? It got to be. Um... For, for one, I mean, there are some great things about this. I mean, the set pieces are really good. I mean, Christopher Lee versus Yoda, I actually mm-hmm. do. I, I do love that. I've, I've got to admit, it was like, that's pretty cool. I was in the cinema in the moment that Yoda whipped out his little green thing. Uh, his lightsaber, sorry. Yeah. He whips out his lightsaber and starts fighting. There was an audible, like, yay, in the cinema. I was like, okay, yeah, that's cool. I've, I've waited my whole life for a thing like that. Yeah. You know, so the special effects are great. Um I think the one person that is acting above anyone else in this is Natalie Portman. And what she's got isn't great to work with, but she masters something the rest of the cast don't. It's called movement while performing. Right? She she is very aware of the surroundings, which is kind of hard when it's green screen, or blue mm. screen in this case. But um, when you watch her performance with a truly awful script and the human balsa wood that is Hayden Christensen acting opposite her. There are animals! And I slaughtered them like animals! This actually sounds Mexican there when I do it. That was actually a bit of a better delivery than he did. <laughs> um, but she actually did really, really good in it. And when I watched it again this week, I was like, you know what? Credit to her. You know, she, she really threw herself into it. She didn't have a lot to work with, but she is the one person who was actually working the most. Now, when you look into this movie, there are some very interesting little factoids about it, Steve. Okay. They're not all good. But <laughs> they're not all positive, I'll put it that way. Um, for one, Attack of the Clones has the distinction of being the only Star Wars movie that was not the top grossing film of the year. Oh. It lost to Spider-Man, which is understandable. Oh, yeah, because that was just a behemoth. Oh, it was just incredible. Um, Not only that, this was the only time 
a Star Wars movie was released in the same year as a Star Trek movie. Oh, oh, was it? Uh, um, I want to say Insurrection, the, but it wasn't. No, it's the one no one can remember. Nemesis. Nemesis? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the one everyone forgets actually was made because they'd give up on Star Trek by that point. Um, it just kind of was shut out. <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, shattered only... out. Shattered out. Yeah. Yes. No pin. No pinwheeling. Yes. No pinwheeling in this movie. Um, but yeah, it's the only time in history a movie from both has been released in the same year. Hmm. Which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Also, this was the last ever Star Wars movie that was released on VHS. Mm, yeah, because I think um, Revenge of the Sith just went straight to DVD, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. The dead medium of VHS. This was probably one of the last movies ever to come out in cassette form. I've mentioned this on another show, the last one to actually be released on VHS, or at least the last mainstream Hollywood movie, was A History of Violence. Yes, it was. Yeah. And what a movie that is. Mm. Much better than Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, which was released 20 years ago this week. I actually want to give a little honourable mention to a movie from 30 years ago this week. Uh, Alien 3 was released, but we covered that in our Got It Threshed three episode, yes. which you can go back and find in our archives. Yes, and um, before we move on and introduce our guests, I have one last factoid that I'm going to give myself. Um, I have been to the Troglodyte Hotel, which was then uh, redressed as the, the homestead in both A New Hope and in the, the Star Wars prequel, so I have stood in Luke Skywalker's kitchen. That's the um, Tunisia? Tunisia, yeah. Uh-huh. Very good. Well, I haven't even been there. Yep. That's cool. Yep, and I've also been to the uh, the mountain range where the Jawas shoot uh, R2-D2, but that was in a much better film. Yes, well, I'm going to go to the Ghostbusters firehouse without scaffolding on it, so go f*** yourself. Anyway, it's time to get back to part two of our interview with Cyrus Forrest and Ethan Reef. Well, 1998. You are both creators and writers of what has now become a true classic show by the name of Brimstone. Which was, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it was a series that was focused on a dead cop that was sentenced to hell who returns to Earth by the devil to recover evil spirits. And it's fantastic premise. Where did this all come from? Thank you. I think it was a movie. It was a, it was an abandoned movie idea that we had. Well, what happened is because Tales from the Crypt was uh, Demon Knight was somewhat successful... You know, you get typecast very easily in Hollywood. So we, Ethan and I, became like, oh, we're horror guys. You guys write horror movies. Which was okay. We had nothing against horror. We loved horror. But because of that, and because we worked relatively quickly, we had an agent who kept saying, you guys should do television. You guys should get involved in television. And I think we went around pitching a totally different concept, uh, like an action show, to TV networks. And everybody passed, but they kept saying, but you know what? You guys wrote that Tales from the Crypt movie. You should come back with a horror show. One thing I'll add, because it is it was the late 90s, and everybody passed for the same reason. They all said, that's a great show. That's a great idea. We totally Our get it. Our action show. Right. And, and after the, a while, the reason, it was, all about, it was all about the timing, because Scream had just come out and sort of injected new life yeah. into the horror genre mm. throughout popular culture. X-Files had, uh, was a big hit on Fox also at that point, had been on a couple of seasons and was big. Yeah. We literally heard that if you came back to us with a horror show, we'd buy it like that. And they snapped their fingers. And we literally heard that three times in a row from three different TV networks. 
And we sort of sat down at lunch and said, this is ridiculous. We should just come up with a horror show and try and sell that to these guys. And I think Brimstone was a movie idea that we were noodling around with yeah. about a, yeah. a, a cop back from hell to hunt down somebody who had escaped from hell, which is like, well, if it's TV, instead of a guy hunting down one escapee from hell, let's make it hundreds of escapees from hell, and we'll yeah. do one for each episode. <laughs> and uh, that sort of was the, the, the notion of that premise. Um yeah, and you know it's funny we we actually stole some stuff from Demon Knight. A, a, you know, uh, a viewer who pays attention will notice that yeah. the way the hero in Brimstone dispatches of the damned souls is the exact same way that uh, Bill Sadler kills the demons in Demon Knight, which is taking out the eyes, the windows to the soul, <laughs> and then yeah. the demons in Demon Knight get you know they explode and some cool special effects and then in brimstone they get sucked back to hell when you take out their eyes so at least we stole from ourselves that's yeah, our, not plagiarism that's our excuse if you steal from and we're sticking to exactly. it and i remember when Cy and i were in toronto canada shooting the pilot out on a s- suburban street and this kid walked up to me because it was whatever i guess it was 1997 and it was kind of it was still a little bit interesting or unusual or exciting for a, a movie or TV crew to be on a public street, you know, in Toronto back then. And he was probably, he was like 12 years old and he asked me what we were shooting. And I pitched him the show, like the very brief <laughs> to the point bullet points of the show that you just pitched out. And I'll always remember he looked at me with these like big saucer eyes full of excitement and with this like reverent hush over his voice, he said, that's awesome. And I thought to myself, (laughs) hey, maybe we actually could succeed because there's like a 12-year-old Canadian kid who thinks it's a really cool (laughs) idea. This show should be on TV. uh, It could could work, yeah. And that kid went on to be Ryan Reynolds. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's possible. It's possible. It's possible. Exactly. It's possible. Exactly. It's We've been doing be. this a long time. For any Brimstone super fans out there, that story occurred outside the house where we shot the flashbacks, where where Zeke Stone returns to the house he shared with his wife before he was uh, killed in the line of duty and walks through the empty house and has memory flashes of, of his wife. Who was a beautiful uh, French Canadian actress, actually? Um, uh, so, so the who thing never that got I remember, to come back to the show, unfortunately. Yeah, because we shot the show in Los Angeles, but the pilot was shot in Toronto. The thing that I always remember was we talked about before producing and writers. Everything we had written before then, we had only written movies, and so we were, I would say, either not involved in production or slightly involved with production. Actually, you know, like. Um, I did some storyboards on the Dolph Lundgren movie on Men of War because I used to draw. And so I did some storyboards for action scenes for Perry Lang. And then, like, uh, I think, there's you know, a Wait, Cy, you shouldn't blow past it that fast. There's a, I'll do this really quick, but there's a great anecdote because the Israeli producer of that movie cornered Cy in an elevator once because he had been asking him for weeks to go to Thailand 
as the onboard storyboard artist to, to continue adding his sort of like visual choreography action talent to the production as the movie actually went into production. And he, he courted Cy in the elevator and said like, why won't you go? Why won't you go to Thailand? I'll pay. It'll be great. You, you know, I, that's what I did. That's what I did for, for, uh, for Jean-Claude Van Damme. And I said, well, you know, if you're going to turn me into a worldwide action movie star, I'll go to Thailand. <laughs> but if I'm just going to be working on storyboards for, you know, the production, I, I don't know that that's really in my best interest. Yeah, exactly. Cornered by a former Israeli tank commander turned, turned movie producer. Um, yeah. But that's just a great to... opportunity. Yeah, exactly. But the point is, we had been slightly... Wilson, that guy. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. We had been slightly involved in production elements in movies, but again, as we said before, the writer in a movie is the low man on the totem pole. The pilot got greenlit by Fox. We shot the pilot in Toronto, and I remember we were basically producing the pilot, and then we went on to produce the show. But I remember literally going to Toronto and going to, you know, we did a few weeks of prep, and the first day of principal photography, and there's trucks and there's hundreds of people and crew and, and the cast and everything. And I looked at Ethan, I said, what have we wrought? Look at this. <laughs> this is all because we had this crazy idea. And now there are like hundreds of people making this crazy pilot that we came up with. I mean, it had been more than 10 years since first I and then I had graduated from NYU you know, film school and we had worked in the trenches and then we had both sort of like just tried to become writers and, and make a living that way. And it was a little, it was one of those like overnight success, but not at all because we had been working really hard uh, for a long time, but we were still relatively young. We were like, I guess in our early, very early thirties. And it was just a great experience because like Sai says, that was the first time for me, I remember being so happy because when I would give someone a copy of, at the time it was still a VHS tape, I think with the pilot on it. And I would say, that's what we wanted to do. And we did it. If you like it, that's awesome because we get the credit. If you don't like it, that's okay because we get the blame. And it was the first time in our lives that we've been able to really say that because we'd actually managed to have a legitimate amount of creative control over how, how the work uh, was realized and, and brought to life, which was awesome. And it also had, you know, it had great acclaim and, and fanfare and, Despite that, you know, Fox end up canceling the show after just one season. Uh, and in, in your view, uh, all these years removed, I mean, what led to the downfall of the show so quickly after it had come out? Was it a case of the network changing the time slot and day? Was it not popular with someone higher up? What What was your well? Reasoning? It was it was a combo. The show was what they call there's a it was a bubble show. The ratings weren't great. They weren't horrible. But and it, it was, was but that that combined with what's what I would single out as the single biggest contributing factor to its cancellation, which was the regime change, which is often yeah. responsible in Hollywood for the end of projects either in development or 
in production or with TV shows, you know, out there in the world. Yeah, what happened was the the people that picked the show up at Fox Network, we did our 13 episodes. They actually ordered uh, a back nine. So there was actually, they ordered a full season. So we were going to actually do more episodes. And literally while we were prepping um, and starting to write and prep the uh, the rest of the season order, the regime, as Ethan said, the regime at Fox changed. And the new regime at Fox basically looked at their schedule, looked at all the shows and said, what's this What's this crazy devil show? What, what the hell is this? What is this doing? Eh, nobody watched this show. Eh, it's dumb. Let's cancel it. And so they basically rescinded our back order. And we wow. literally, so we got canceled literally two hours into shooting episode 14. Oh, of man. Oh, yeah. We literally had to rough. walk to the set because then we, we called up Warner Brothers, who was the studio, and said, hey, you know, we got canceled, but, you know, we're going to finish this episode, right? And there was this pause. And they're like, no, we're not finishing this episode. <laughs> We're pulling the plug. We're not spending another oh. dime on this show. And so Ethan and I, uh, along with our lead actor, Peter Horton, we had to basically walk to the set because we were shooting some part of the lot, Warner Brothers lot, and basically say, okay, show's canceled. Everybody pack up. That's it. We're done. And that was that was the end of the show. Um, which, you know, in retrospect – I feel like the final episode we did, the 13th episode, is a great ending for that series. Uh, but we did have like nine more episodes planned that never got to be produced. The one other element that w- or dynamic that was a major contributing factor to that decision process, like Cy just described it in a very diplomatic manner, saying the new regime came in and looked at the shows on their schedule on the board and said, ah, what's this brimstone show, this devil show? And eh, nobody watches that. Let's cancel it. That's not really what happened. What happened was the new president came in at the network and looked at the schedule and said, okay, this brimstone show, it's on the bubble. It's, it's not a big success, nor is it a big uh, failure. Wow. It's right in the middle. What do we do with it? You guys have the experience. You guys have knowledge about the show from inside this world. What should we do with it? And unfortunately for us and the show, our lead actor, the star of the show, Peter Horton, who went on to be a pretty, a, a very successful television director who directs, has directed a lot of big, successful TV pilots, including um, Grey's Anatomy and, and a, bunch of, a bunch of other shows. He had he had made the lives of the network executives at Fox who dealt with our show a living hell because he had his own sort of picadillos about the way the show was produced and the way the show looked and the way the show was presented. And he had issues with us, but he also, unbeknownst to us, had been going around us and taking his issues directly to the network. And when that question was poised by the new president of Fox, what do we do with this show? It's on the bubble. The people who he had made their lives a bit of a living hell said, cancel it because we want to be done with that, <laughs> dealing with this situation. So that's that's a little more of the reality. 
Yeah. Well, you've gotten the diplomatic version and the non-diplomatic version. Uh, they're both they're both true. It was a combination of those things. Well, no, I mean that's all true except you, there's the diplomatic version and the true version. So you know, <laughs> whatever. It was also true that the ratings were not great enough to. to... It is. It was, and I included that because right. you know the ratings weren't great, but they weren't. The terrible point either. is that what you find doing television, unless you have a breakout hit show. There are a lot of factors involved, and one of the factors involved is, is this a show that people in the network, is a show they like? Is it a show, do they like the people working on the show? Do they like the stars? Is it an easy, you know, when they get a call from the set, is it a call they look forward to, or is it a call they dread? So I think or what do they get a call, is, Or do they get a call at the network where the star producer tells them to meet him for color timing at the color timing <laughs> facility because he's not happy with the way the director of photography and the executive producers have been color timing the show. Trust me, no network president wants to sit in a little a color timing booth. To pay, you know, they all have better things to do. So the bottom line is that, again, if your show's not a big hit, there are a lot of factors involved in whether a show continues or does not continue and some of them are personal so it is what it is the only way to get around that is to have a show that's either a huge critical success or a big financial success well this is uh, 20th century fox the network that cancelled not only firefly but family guy twice so who really knows? Go. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Find out more next week when Peter Horton joins us on Party <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's he, would, awesome. he would tell you the same. He would tell you the same. He said, oh, those bastards. No, he would tell you, you guys won't understand how badly the show was being color timed by those imbeciles. <laughs> <laughs> if I showed you the blue that they were letting out onto the airwaves, you would instantly understand. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Here's here's the here's the last thing I'll say about about that. I think Ethan and I and Peter, as the star of the show, had a very uh, a, a lot of tension in our creative relationship. But I feel that ultimately it it made the show more interesting. I think if Ethan and I had had our druthers, the show would have been. Uh, much more genre a little bit more pulpy, more, just much more, uh, like, more leaning into horror and more mm -hmm. leaning into the genre elements. Peter really wasn't interested in that. He was interested in this, like, a lot of character stuff, a lot of character nuance, the idea of, like, oh, here's a guy who's been dead for 15 years, he's been in hell, what's his life like now? And I think that tension creatively between us when I go back and I look at the show again, it, it, it provided a lot of great stuff that alone neither of us would have come up with. You know, if Peter had his way, there would be no action or horror in the show. It would just be a dead guy walking around for 90 minutes. Uh, and if Ethan and I may have, again, pushed more into the action horror genre things. But I think that friction made the show uh, much more interesting and, and maybe more idiosyncratic and ultimately more memorable, I think. The problem is now that uh, people listening to this won't have a chance to actually check it out unless they saw it the, the first time around oh. or perhaps have got hold of it 
via nefarious means because it's not available on any home video formats. So it's not available on streaming. Yeah. So have have you pushed for its release, maybe through HBO, or, or what kind of response have you had from this? It fell between the cracks. It slipped between the cracks. It was We missed the... a great DVD window. There was a period where, basically, when the DVD market was exploding, everything was coming out on DVD. Yeah. Uh, and I think by the time, and if you look at these old lists, Brimstone was always like, in the top five shows not on DVD that should be on DVD. And then I think when the market changed from DVD to streaming, for whatever reason, it just it just missed that window. It's frustrating to me because it's the only thing we've written that's not available in any any format, you know, that's not either on DVD or on Blu-ray or streaming in some form. Yeah, it's just sort of it just sort of is languishing in the vaults of Warner Warner Brothers, and hopefully at some point, you know, at, at some day before we all keel over, it'll come out. But that's unfortunately what it is. Um, I know there's bootleg DVDs you can buy. So what can I tell you? I'm gonna. No, I'm gonna, I think I'm, uh, since, that was alluded. That was alluded to with the nefarious. Yeah, since Warner's mm-hmm. is not. Is, I I don't mind pissing off Warner Brothers since they won't put our. They haven't put it out. So I'll I'll, I'll promo the boot the many bootleg releases of Brimstone <laughs> that you can find on eBay or whatever you are. Yeah, you used to be uh, able to watch a lot of the episodes on YouTube. Actually, um, I don't yeah, know if that's still the case. I haven't looked for years, but. Around this time, you both also worked for the uh, the cult movie home Full Moon Entertainment for uh, a number of scripts, including uh, Josh Kirby Time Warrior, which was kind of a, I guess it was a movie serial in a way. Uh, yeah. So being fans of sci-fi and horror, was Full Moon just a blast for you both creatively? Charlie Band, uh, Ethan, does Charlie still owe us money? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> <laughs> Not much, L- much less than he owes a lot of other people. We, yeah. we got out of there financially, largely intact. He only owed us like five grand when when he was shut down with the cease yeah. and desist order by Paramount. Yeah, Pictures. I'm sure he's had several of those. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about about Charles Ban and and Full Moon and and uh, he, we talked about that sort of uh, fallow period in genre entertainment in the first half of the '90s. If you went to your Blockbuster or your local video store, mm-hmm. there was always a Charlie Band, and you were like <laughs> starved for genre entertainment. You had Puppet Master, Puppet Master two, three, four, five, and six. You had Trancers. You had, and you know his hot, some of his really good stuff. I, you know, Charlie was a producer on uh, Reanimator, which is a classic. Mm. That was a previous iteration as Empire uh, Empire Entertainment. Right? But Charlie kept genre filmmaking going through the first half of the 90s when the studios weren't doing it. So if you wanted to do horror movies or sci-fi movies at that period, almost everybody worked for Charlie Band for Full Moon Entertainment. Uh, and Charlie also was a big comic book guy. So we went in and we had a we got a general meeting at, at Charlie's company, probably off of the script for Demon Knight. And Charlie had a bunch of old comic books lying around uh, called, uh, I think it was called Time Master from DC in the 50s. And I'm a big comic book guy. So he's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. And Charlie says, yeah, I want to do something like this. But we can't actually do Time Time Master because Warner Brothers owns that. I just want to do my own version. This was like Charlie. Charlie famously was a big fan of Doctor Strange. 
And so he basically yeah. ripped off Doctor Strange and did his own version called Doctor Mordred. Um, <laughs> I remember that. So, yeah, so, so do I. But, but the thing is, remember Charlie the was on- poster. Yeah, but the thing is, Charlie was honest about it. He there was he wasn't he wasn't like he was just like yeah. See this? We're gonna rip this off. And, <laughs> and so we were young writers, and we're like, okay, can we come up? With a version, uh, or some some of our, you know, obviously we want to come up with as much of our own stuff as possible. But can we come up with something like this, that's different enough that it's original, but it's inspired by uh, a guy going through time? And then he wanted to do he had this great idea. He he was starting a kids line, a full moon. I think it was called Moonbeam was the label, and he had this I think very ahead of its time idea of like, hey. I'm going to do a series of movies, and we'll put them out in the video store like every two weeks or every month. So the kids come in, and they'll see the first one, and then there'll be another one out like the next month. And so, and I think originally, Ethan, there was supposed to be 10 movies, wasn't it? I think we wrote outlines for 10 movies. Yeah, yeah. It ended up being six, yeah. But it was fun. It was just antics. It was fun. Again, we were very young. Uh, I think it came out a little later because of Charlie's uh, legal issues or whatever with Paramount. They all came out before before Brimstone. What started us out over there at um, Full Moon was actually the screenplay for Demon Knight. There was a, mm-hmm. a young guy about our same age who was in charge of development for um, uh, for for Charlie, and he loved the script to Demon Knight. And he tried to convince Charlie to actually make it, to buy, you know, for Full Moon to buy it and make it. And it was it was outside of Charlie's sort of like vision for what his what his company was going to be. But he finally convinced Charlie that he should meet with us, the guys who had written that script and talk to us about his ideas, because really everything that got made by his company, even though it was dozens unto hundreds of projects, came directly from his mind and directly from his memory of comic books and genre movies that he had read or seen in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, And so we had that meeting that Cy was talking about, which was interesting. We drove over to the studio lot, which was in Glendale, which is kind of like a sort of small suburban slash industrial city, a little bit north of uh, Los, just north of Los Angeles, whatever. And we parked outside, and I'm sort of like a big uh, history and politics uh, guy, and I noticed that there was an American flag flying over this small studio, mini studio lot, whatever. And a Romanian flag flying. And I remember saying aside, that's interesting. Why does this guy have a Romanian Romanian flag? flag? What's happening? And then as time went on and we got into business where they hired us to write first Dr. Mordred two and three, which never got made, unfortunately. And and also all those sequels to Dr. Mordred, yeah. And also all those Josh Kirby movies, we learned that. Right after the fall of the of Ceausescu in Romania, uh, Charlie had like taken a lot of champagne, U.S. cash, and bread, and flown like bread, like to feed people with, you know, loaves of bread, and flown over to whatever Bucharest, and then like made a deal to buy like a fifty percent ownership stake in the Romanian National Film Works, 
and that was the key. That was the key to his production slate, you know, pipeline. Everything uh, shot in Romania. So cheap movies, yeah, and productive, yeah. That's brilliant. In fact, we, yeah. when we did Josh Kirby, there was uh, it was supposed to be suburban America, USA, like I'll call Spielberg suburbia, right? And so Charlie, they built a American suburban cul-de-sac in Romania with houses and like that, you know, like that sort of classic Spielberg suburb. And apparently they had issues because uh, Romanians were moving into the suburb, <laughs> to the fake houses <laughs> and the streets. And they kept having to come yeah. in and chase people out every morning when they were going to be shooting because there were like yeah. people just living in these places. So. Another one other anecdote from that production, which we were just here in, you know, in L.A. while it was ramping up and, and, and preparing to shoot. And we had this one production meet, pre-production meeting, where the line producer was was really freaking out and sort of not yelling at us, but desperate for us to change some details because the first movie in the series involved sort of a collection of displaced people from across time, from different periods of history, who sort of like form this ensemble guest cast around the, the main character hero kid. And one of them was a World War I flying ace with a biplane. And the line producer was going crazy because I always remember he said to us, there's one operable biplane in Romania and they use it to deliver the mail. There's no way we can have access to a biplane. And that was, that was an interesting that was an interesting moment. You know? the, the last thing I'll say about that I remember was we got dailies back from the movie and all the smaller parts, like the, let's say the villains, minions, or like the townspeople, all, all like the secondary roles were played by Romanians in these thick Romanian accents, like barely understandable English. And we kept thinking, well, you're going to redub that stuff later, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. They never redubbed it. That would have cost too much money. So when you watch the Josh Kirby series, everybody beyond the principles all are strangely speaking in these thick Bella Lugosi accents. <laughs> Which, you know, anyhow, that's the wacky story of Josh Kirby, Time Warrior. No, there's one other, there's one other story from that era that's even arguably worse than the heavy accents by the supporting cast, which was Charlie's father, Albert Band, who was the grand old man of the company, who had been a assistant director for such, you know, filmmakers as John Houston, mm. like back in the day, and then gone on, I believe, to direct one spaghetti western in Spain, perhaps. Right, and, under the name Alberto Bandini. That was his fake Italian name. <laughs> he turned, Albert but only turned one. Wait, wait, Ethan. Albert Band turned it around because normally uh, spaghetti westerns were directed by Italians who would take on American names. Like, you know, directed by, you know, Joe Winston or John McIntyre. But uh, Al Albert was an American directing spaghetti westerns and giving himself a fake uh, Italian name. <laughs> yeah. Which is a very original approach. So we wrote and oversaw 
in a writing sense as like the head writers of the series of these sort of like uh, serialized, you know, pulp movies, six of these separate chapters. And they were all intricately, intimately serialized from chapter one to two to three through six, right? And then Jurassic Park came out and we had dinosaurs, time-displaced dinosaurs in the second chapter, which was called like Planet of the Dino Knights. But that entire <laughs> chapter, that entire self-contained movie stood, you know, as chapter two, which couldn't exist until it w- in a rational mind of a viewer until after you'd seen chapter one, which set up the entire universe, right? Which was called the human pets. Okay. So Albert Band, Albert Band decided that Kids love dinosaurs after the Jurassic Park box office came in without consideration that, you know, that involved tens of millions of dollars in special effects budgets and the visionary filmmaking skills of Steven Spielberg or whatever. He just said, kids love dinosaurs. And he basically cut the first half of the second movie, which introduced the dinosaur plot together with the first half of the first movie and retitled the first movie Planet of the Dino Knights and then took the second half of the first movie and moved it after the second half of the second movie and made that the human pets or whatever. And we were like, this is unbelievable. At least, like Sai said, oh, you're going to, you know, what we had said to them, you're going to ADR, you're going to redub those voices. And they were like, of course, of course. What do you think we are? Uh, uh, Incompetent income poops? And (laughs) we said, you guys are going to at least do some insert shots or transitions or at least some ADR dialogue to explain these unfathomable chaotic transitions. And we got the same, of course, you know, we're not amateurs. Of course we are. And then they released it, and there was nothing. It was literally take the first half of this movie and glue it together to <laughs> the first half of the other movie and then take the second half of the second movie and glue it together to the second half of the first movie. It was it was surreal. It was a surreal it experience. Made, yeah, yeah. Literally, if you could just imagine just cutting halves of movies together and, and gluing them together and just putting them out in the theater, it really made, it made no sense. I, I, I all still, in order to get dinosaurs into the in lead, the first, first chapter, which may have been a somewhat legitimate like marketing decision, but at least follow through and spend 10 cents on trying to cover up these incomprehensible, you know, transitions that make no sense. Oh, man, I, think I haven't maybe, thought about that in a long time, but. No, I think maybe if you watch these movies now and you're stoned, maybe they're sort of fun. <laughs> and, and the fact that, like, wait a minute, why are there dinosaurs now in this movie? I don't understand. Maybe that would be cool. I don't know. Very post. Well, that that was another that was another project we worked on where the release got sort of caught up in transactional slash legal issues because Charlie's company got shut down by the legal authorities here in Los Angeles before those movies were released on home video. 
and the rights were bought by somebody else. I don't remember Alliance or so, somebody who released them. And, and when that happened, I actually had a glimpse of like a possibility of hope that, you know, some, some cooler head would prevail and they'd look at those transitions in, in those first two chapters and spend, I don't know, a few thousand or a few tens of thousands of dollars to re-record some ADR dialogue or make some tiny cutting adjustments. But no, they, no, they didn't do it. They didn't do anything. No, the director of Tammy and the T-Rex pretty much scooped all of that footage up. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, from there, I mean, you, you both also turn in drafts for um, another horror icon showdown, which was Freddy versus Jason. Uh, working... Yeah, I knew you'd get it in. There you go, Steve. <laughs> all of my cats in the room, suddenly their ears just went up. So um, uh, you're working there with the producer, Sean S. Cunningham. And obviously yeah, these two yeah. franchises, they, and it was a very anticipated showdown ever since the days of, I think it was Jason Goes to Hell or something like that. So you turned in a script. How was your script different from what ultimately went ahead? I, I don't. I think it's totally different. I, I, here's it's the thing. Pretty different. That movie was in development for ages. I think you know. There's an old saying, or there's this old, I don't know, wife's town. There's this old thing about like always have a dollar in your pocket, because then no matter how poor you are, you know you still got that dollar in your pocket. Freddy versus Jason was the dollar in New Line's pocket. They were yeah. developing that script for years, and they never made it. Because they always knew that as long as they had that in their pocket, they still had a surefire commercial hit. And so they delayed making it for years and just spent endless monies on on scripts and development. I mean, Ethan, I think when the movie finally got made, we got a thing from the Writers Guild to see if like, yeah, well, do you want to get if, credit? If, yeah, if you're if you're involved in a in a project, in a movie and you were paid to write a draft and your name is on, or your names in our case, plural, are on the cover page. And then the movie gets made. If there are four or more names on the credit list of writers who got their names on the front page, on the cover page of screenplays, versions of that project, um, it automatically has to be, has to, the credit, determination has to go to an arbitration, which is this sort of like formalized process that, that the Writers Guild conducts in-house to see what the fairest and, and according to the rules of the Writers Guild credit guide, how the, how the credit should be determined. And we got a package of material from the Writers Guild when this process was going on. And the thing is, I don't think any of the writers had asked for it. Nobody was arguing over what the credit should be. And there were literally like 15 different entities, mm. 15 writing entities, partnerships and single writers. It was like two or three giant packages because back then they still sent hard copies of scripts for people to read. Not They didn't just email everything to everyone or send a link to the cloud. And we got these giant stacks with copies of all the different drafts, which we were supposed to read and decide, do we want to argue that we deserved some kind of shared credit in for the movie? And 
I don't even, I don't think we read any of that. I, maybe we looked, we flipped through the last version, which was the version that was actually, you know, coming out. And there was so little to nothing of what we had written years earlier that we never, we didn't, we certainly didn't arbitrate or, or ask for shared no. credit. It was just memorable because there were lists of names of like everybody in Hollywood who'd ever written a horror film. Because over that development process, they had hired so many writers to write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite various different versions of that project with different directors involved and different producers involved over the over the course of many years yeah the the one thing that i think we came up with that is not in the finished movie but i i think i remember from our version was we had this notion of tying the origins of freddie and jason tying the franchises together and so what we came up with which is really horrifying and twisted and quite perverse was that uh you know in the in the in the jason mythos jason was a uh, a kid at camp crystal lake who mm -hmm. drowned and his mom came back for revenge against the counselors who had sort of like neglectfully let her son drown so uh and then freddie was a child killer. Oh, a child molester, we could say. Yeah, well, they were always sort That's of vague true. about, was Freddie, did he molest the kids? Did he just kill them? What was the deal? So what we did is in our in our version, uh, Freddie was actually a young camp counselor at Camp Crystal Lake, and he had molested Jason, and then he drowned Jason so that Jason wouldn't tell anybody that Freddie had molested him. And so... When Jason comes back and he's killing all these counselors in the he's really just trying to kill Freddy because Freddy's the guy that actually killed Jason all those years ago. So that was our sort of the, that was our contribution, which is not I'm sure not in the final movie. Way too twisted. But that was the one thing we did uh, in, in our crazy draft yeah. of Freddy versus Jason. It certainly Jason. would have made Jason a more sympathetic character going forward from that. Yeah. Speaking for myself as somebody who went to uh, who went away to a Boy Scout camp in the summers of my youth, <laughs> it seemed like the natural organic way to connect the origin stories of the two uh, horror icons. Yeah. The one thing I remember about that, uh, the, to me, the most memorable thing about that process, working with Sean S. Cunningham, who's a really terrific guy and a really uh, a fun guy. Sean did something which I thought was totally sweet and totally crazy at the same time when we finished our script he got together a bunch of actors he basically had a table reading a staged reading with actors and producers everything, of jason versus freddie now it's one thing to have a staged reading of like a shakespeare movie or a sydney lament drama <laughs> or or uh the latest uh, wes anderson movie but Freddie versus Jason, the table read was mostly people going, ah, uh, ah. <laughs> and I think Ethan, I read somebody reading, you know, Freddie chops off uh, the guy's head with his claws. I mean, it was hilarious. It was just, it was absolutely insane. But because Sean was such a sweet guy and he was like, oh, this is great. And it's a script and we're going to learn so much from the table read. You know, it was a, it was a really cool thing. I mean, it was absurd, but it was also great. So, that's my great memory. Yeah, I, did, I mean, honestly, Jason. I I never saw it as absurd. I I just appreciated. Oh, you know, I mean, it is a piece of uh, written material, and we'll get to hear it, and we'll get to make some tweaks and adjustments <clears throat> to 
things that don't ring true or sound, you know, sound the best they can be. It was, it was cool. Yeah. 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 I suppose if you take things off the page, then it brings a whole new life to it. And speaking of things that are off the page. Nice segue. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, (laughs) We're going to move on to one of Andrew's favorite topics of all time. Chow Young Fat. Oh, yes. Yes. Andrew has good taste. Andrew has good taste. So my hero. You two both land the job of writing the comic book adaptation of Bulletproof Monk, which was rumored around the time of the uh, of the the writing to be directed by John Woo, which, when teamed with Chow, would have been gold once more. So, was this potential reunion a huge draw for you for both signing on to write the project? Uh, yeah, well, that's the only honestly, that's one and all only reason we did sign on to write the project. We were recruited to write that project at a dinner where the producer, Terrence Chang, who was partners with John Wu, brought us, invited us to have dinner with him and Chow Yun-Fat. We didn't even know. He brought the comic book to dinner and pulled it out to say, hey, we're interested. Would you guys have any, you know, would you want to? And we were like, uh, I mean, in all honesty, if he had pulled out of a kitchen sink and said, we're interested in you guys turning this kitchen sink into a movie that Chow Young Fat sitting beside me and eating with you guys can star in. We would have said, "That's a brilliant, that's amazing." Where do we sign? Do that's a fantastic idea, you know. Which is nothing against nothing against the comic book or the source material. It's just that it was all about Chow Young Fat for us from the very very beginning. Mm-hmm. That project. Yeah, oh, no, yeah, I want to back it up and say Ethan and I were huge Hong Kong movie fans from the mid '80s. Uh, because we were both in New York, and you could still go to New York's Chinatown. There were three movie theaters, and we got all the movies from Hong Kong uh, on double bills at these Chinese movie theaters. And Ethan and I would go down uh, to see these movies. Um, We got turned on to them. There was an article in Film Comment about a Toronto film festival that played a bunch of Hong Kong movies, that was like, oh, interesting, in like 85 or 86. And then we had a friend of ours. Yeah, I had a friend who gave me a VHS copy of uh, Better Tomorrow. Better Tomorrow. And, oh, I, and I, started, I started to watch it. I started to watch it at home alone. And I stopped after I got to about maybe 10 or 15 minutes. It might be the scene where where the uh, mob assassins come to take out the family and the, the dad is ha, uses like a, a frying pan of scalding water yeah. to try and uh, defend, defend them. And I stopped, I pushed pause or stop, and I called Cy at where, he, I think he was at work, and I said, you have to come to my place when you get out of work because I'm going to rewind this movie to the start. It's, it's been on for like 10 minutes. We have to watch it together from beginning to end. It's amazing. And he showed up. I rewound it, and we watched the movie, and it just blew our minds in a sense, you know? Right. And the thing was, it was it was a friend of ours who was a Chinese-American guy whose uh, – his parents were uh, born in China and spoke uh, Chinese, spoke Cantonese in the household, and they were watching these Hong Kong movies, and I guess – his mom or his brother had watched this movie and, and said, oh, it's really good. And he literally, he said to Ethan, like, hey, you know, 
this movie's supposed to be good. I don't know. Check it out. Tell me if it's any good. And that was better tomorrow. So we started yeah, I going his, I to. I don't think his parents weren't watching that. His parents watched soap operas from Hong Kong TV. He, he, it was just he had heard friends friends of his who were right. like movie guys had said like, oh, you got to watch this. And And he was reticent because I think he had a sort of you know, first generation child of immigrants reticence or hesitation to fully embrace something from, you know, from his cultural homeland or whatever, which is sometimes, sometimes the case. And so he gave it to me and said, I don't know, they say people are telling me that I should check this out, but it's hard for me to believe it's really going to be that good. I mean, you watch it and tell me or whatever. And it just blew our minds how, how so how we good it was. basically started going to Chinatown and watching all these Chalian Fat movies, John Woo movies, Jackie Chan movies, and we were like pretty much the only uh, uh, American, uh, the only Westerners in these Chinese movie theaters. What really grabbed us and 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 hit us and struck us so powerfully watching those movies was the genre blending, because remember yes. this is like. In the mid to late 80s, before pre Tarantino, mm -hmm. yeah, and 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 just pre a lot of a lot of pop culture movie making uh paradigm shifts and and new you know new waves of style, and the idea of crashing together distinct genres inside a movie that took itself somewhat seriously and was well made was like groundbreaking i remember when Sai and i first met john woo before that um before they i guess it was before they invited uh, terence chang invited us to dinner with chinese fat we had met john woo at the offices of the company he shared with with terence chang and i remember saying to him that his seeing his movies for us was like seeing the French New Wave for Martin Scorsese, you know? It was like a, a kind of like a revelation of, oh, the things that you think about doing or dream about doing are maybe possible. Because even Demonite, which was the first thing Cy and I had ever written together, one of the things I think that's special about it and has enabled it to sort of live on with this like strong fan base and cult following over 25 plus years is that yes, it's a horror film and it delivers on the horror expectation front, but it's also a hero film. It's also a, a movie with its, its hero side in, in a sort of like a, a big, a big way, which at the time was a little bit original. I'm not saying mm -hmm. it had never been, you know, tried or, or done before, but it was it was a little bit it was a little bit original and that genre blending we saw that every time we went to a, a Hong Kong movie theater in, in New York City Chinatown and you know we all, we went to see the movies we went out of our way to see the movies made by the best the most outstanding filmmaker director guys from Hong Kong sometimes those would be paired up with more mediocre run of the mill programmers from Hong Kong but we did our best to see the best of, the, of that material. And it was, it was just different from anything we'd seen. It was delivering on sort of tried and true commercial genre filmmaking expectations and also filled with just heaps of sort of like 
spontaneity, inspiration, and this kind of like almost um, subversive energy and surprise, you know, and it, it just blew our minds. And, and it, was, it was kind of an inspiration to us when we started out in the early days of, of writing our first, our first screenplays. So then being able to meet John Woo and tell him that was, was pretty awesome, I have to say. So the thing about meeting Chai and Fat is the first thing I'll, I, I want to say a couple few things. The first thing is that Chai and Fat, when you meet movie stars and you work in the business, it's interesting. You talk about the magic of film, okay? Some movie stars come in and they seem like normal people. And yet when the camera turns on, they become these big icons on the screen. But when you see them in real life, they're sort of like normal people. And they're sort of like, oh, okay, that's weird. That's interesting. Chalian Fat is a guy. He's the other type of movie star. He walks into a room and basically everybody's like, who's that guy? He's tall. He's charming. He's just one of these guys that's so charismatic in real life that you're like, Holy crap, if this guy isn't a movie star, he should be a movie star. The other thing about Chalian Fat, and I think one of the big things we wanted to do with Bulletproof Monk, which I think we achieved, was that, as Ethan said, we had seen all these Hong Kong movies. We'd seen Chalian Fat basically do everything. He did action. He did comedy. He did romance. He, he, was, he was funny. He did serious drama. And up to that point, all of his American movies had been just, he's like the Chinese Steve McQueen. He says like three year, words yeah. in a movie and he fires a gun. And we knew Chai and Fat could be funny. He could be charming. He could be moving. He can do all this stuff. So our real goal in doing Bulletproof Monk, in addition to being doing a fun action movie, was to really show off Chai and Fat's uh, range and all the crazy things he can do. And I think to this day, I think that's still, to me, the best thing about the movie is Chalian. It's the only American movie that Chalian Fad is in where he's actually funny and he's actually charming in that sort of way he is in tons of Hong Kong movies, but virtually none of his American movies. Uh, the other thing is that part of the challenge was the Bulletproof Monk comic book. The Bulletproof Monk is not in the comic book. So this was an interesting writing challenge. Yeah, he's a he's a mythic, legendary figure, sort of you know, in the shadows, and not in the shadows like you catch a glimpse of him. In just the past, in the in the sort of like he's a myth. So the first thing was that oh, we have to actually put the bulletproof monk in the story, and we have to create that character for Chai and Fat to play. So again, that was great, also because we could craft that character to make it fun and charming and entertaining and do all that cool stuff that Chai and Fat had not got to do in an American English language movie up to that point. Okay, Ethan and Sai, why are hot dogs sold in packs of 10, but hot dog buns only sold in packs of eight? <laughs> so Nobody you can knows. always have... <laughs> no, what are you talking about? Anybody who's seen the movie knows. Because that way, you can always have a hot dog. <laughs> Another no matter what else no matter how many other profound life challenges you may be facing you can always have a hot dog there you go. now we know who wrote that line yeah. yeah Ethan is a big hot dog hot dog buff he's going to be all over Grace Papaya then isn't he yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean I like Grace Papaya but you know they tried to open one in LA and it died really fast 
So, and a tragedy and tragedy which was, which was a pity but yeah i'm probably the worst person for this because i did actually visit new york a few years ago went to grace papaya and just thought this just tastes like a hot dog <laughs> i was expecting this wonderful life-changing experience and it was just yeah. like it's just a hot we dog. have the the la version. no but it had the but what about what about the what about the crack you know what about the the stiff the, uh, uh, skin the crack. crack, you know, and the heat. Yeah, when you take your oh, life yeah. because it's particularly. Oh, uh, I was going to say, this is Steve, a did you buy crack in New York? I did not buy crack in New York, no. no. That's, a, that's <laughs> just a condiment <laughs> that can be dog. added depending on where you're at. The L.A. version of that is Pink's, which again is a huge tourist uh, yeah. thing in L.A. No. Pink's is, I have that. Pinks is, in my opinion, it, Pinks is very overrated. I I would go yeah, for I, Fab I Dogs or or um, Carnies are the the two outstanding hot dog spots in Los Angeles. So how did a movie like this with John Woo potentially directing suddenly switch to Paul Hunter, who may have had an extensive music video background but had never directed a movie before? Honestly, well, I mean, a- that's the that's the first time. Speaking for myself, I don't know about Sai. I've never heard the rumor that uh, there was a possibility that John Woo was actually going to direct it before. I mean, I don't think that was presented to us when we, when we started out, he was always a producer. I I don't know that that was really a thing. Um, well, I mean, look, David Fincher came from directing music videos. It's it, especially in the nineties. It was a big thing. And Paul Hunter was like the hottest music video director. Yeah, at every, every studio, every studio wanted to make a movie with Paul Hunter. It was, it was actually a very big deal for the project moving forward. When Paul Hunter read the script and said, Oh, I, I this is what I want to do. You know, he had mm-hmm. like lots of other projects to, to, choose from for for better or worse whatever the only thing i'll say about paul hunter doing bulletproof monk um is that he had a very the script was very i would say somewhat edgy and subversive when we pitched it it was actually we sort of pitched it as train spotting meets indiana jones with kung fu wow and it it, <laughs> it had a very subversive vibe to it and as ethan said would referred for like sort of a genre mashup and it was definitely r-rated and paul came aboard and paul had done these super edgy music videos for like he did the american woman video for uh lenny kravitz he did yeah. a, a ton of these super edgy super cool music videos and that's where they hired him to do the movie. Paul came in and said, you know what? I want to make this a four-quadrant movie. I want to make this like a like a Spielberg movie for, for the family. And we were like, okay, that's an interesting approach. I think the studio was like, okay. But I think they didn't really believe him. They were like, no, no. He's still going to do this super cool, edgy action movie with this edgy stuff. I mean, he just did Lenny Kravitz videos. It's going to be cool. And Paul was like very clear, no, no, I want to make this a family movie. So as a result, you have, I would say, the only uh, martial arts action movie that is universally beloved by 12-year-old girls and middle-aged women, their mothers. It's a, it's a very <laughs> sweet, friendly and, – and again, the script is not that – it's not that different. You realize, like, the you know, 
it, Paul had a very strong point of view. So it, he basically sort of just pulled out a lot of the edgier stuff. Script's still very much the same. It's just the approach to it was totally the opposite of the way I think it was sort of written. And I think the way the studio thought uh, Paul was going to approach it. But, you know, I, we were – Ethan and I were there the whole time. It was like he Paul was not – he didn't trick anybody. He said, I want to do it this way. And they were like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. That sounds great, Paul. But I just don't think they believed him. And so everybody was sort of shocked at the end that they – it's this very, like, family-friendly sort of movie, which ironically is almost a a, a, a segue. Uh, I don't want to throw your order off, but it's almost a, it, it's almost a segue to Kung Fu Panda because I think – the script for Bulletproof Monk and sort of the the, the vibe on it and, and the buzz that was coming out. Uh, before sort of it was released. Got, before, right. before it was it released, was released was sort of how we ended up going to DreamWorks and getting involved in Kung Fu Panda. Um, and really, the joke is the Finnish movies are not that dissimilar in a crazy way because they're both sort of family-friendly martial arts movies. Mm. Except one has Jet Black. Skadoosh! Yes! Skadoosh! <laughs> yeah. Well, moving into uh, 2005 here, you you kind of hit gold with the series Sleeper Cell, uh, which was presented on Showtime. And it garnered you both dozens of industry award nominations, including, I guess, what was your first ever Emmy nomination. Now, how did this idea come to be? Um, that's um, a good question. It, it, it I have we haven't neither of us has told this story in a long time. Actually, what happened was we had a much more traditional kind of uh, counterterrorism police procedural show that we had developed with a journalist um, who had worked in that world, and we took it around town pitching it. And this was, I guess, two thousand and three, two thousand and three slash two thousand and four. So just Mm-hmm. A couple of years after the nine eleven, uh, you know, terrorist attacks in in the U.S. and at the in the still in the early days of what's come to be known as the global war on terror, and we went to all these places, and we would get the phone call after we left, and our agent would say, "They love you, they love they love your you know your passion, but." They, they're not going to buy the show. It's too, it's, it's just not, they're not comfortable with this material. They want you to come back with, you know, something a, a little less, a little less uh, extreme, which I guess it, it counted as extreme because it was somewhat ripped from the headlines and dealing with the terrorism issues that were just part of life at that time. And we went to lunch and I remember we got off, I, we got off the phone with our agent and we were just kind of pissed off and somehow our reaction to them telling us or the, the potential buyer, the potential network telling us this is too edgy and too extreme, even though we had taken this edgy material and refitted it into a very tried and true conventional police procedural structure and format. And we sort of looked at each other and and somehow we said, like, it, fuck them. We should just go balls to the wall and do 
the most extreme version of this story, which is just follow a undercover counterterrorism guy inside the belly of the beast of the closest we can create to a real world Islamic extremist terror cell and see what the f they say about that. <laughs> and we we went and I don't know, soon after we talked about it more and we sort of like developed the idea a little more ourselves. And then we, for some reason, we were at the building where our agency was and we went in to see our TV agent. I guess we were excited about the idea. And even though the other idea had just crapped out recently and we went in to see him and he was like, well, what is it? What do you want to talk to me about? And we pitched it to him and he said, that's great. We have to, we have to, we have to sell that. We'll sell that. That's great. Which was kind of a little bit of a surprise, but was a great surprise. You know, we were prepped for more of a confrontation with him. Like he would say, you're crazy. That's that's so over the top. That's so beyond the pale of what anybody's going to do. It's just too edgy and too realistic. I, I, I will say I just want to jump in and say I think the you know, Ethan is a New Yorker. I was you know, I spent. 10 years in New York and uh, used to take the path train to the World Trade Center all the time. So we both had very visceral, like the rest of the world, but very visceral personal reactions to 9-11. And we kept thinking like, God, we should do something about this. And I would also say, and I don't think we've talked about this before, Ethan. Oh, the 24 uh, thing? Yeah. Sleeper Cell was sort of created as a direct response to 24 because 24 whatever you you know love it hate it whatever 24 especially in its early seasons really dealt with terrorism in this sort of comic book james bond sort of fantasy way and i think ethan and i with the with the and i'll just jump in and say with the icelandic terrorists <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and i think ethan and i really hated 24 because it was just absolute horseshit. And it was sort of like, here's a, you know, here's an all-American white guy fighting usually all-American, or like Ethan says, Icelandic terrorists. It was just absolute horseshit. And we were just sort of like, let's do a fucking real terrorism show. Let's do a show. And then also, honestly, we were sort of like, I always say the, the catch-22, I'll use that term again, about, uh, 9-11 was that, and I'll use myself as an example. I don't, I don't think Ethan's like this. Ethan was very worldly and into international things and knew a lot. I didn't know anything about Islam. And then 9-11 forced me to sort of learn about it. And I think that was another thing for me. I remember one of my heroes as a kid was uh, Muhammad Ali. And I remember Muhammad Ali coming out the days after 9-11 and saying, hey, uh, you know, I'm a Muslim. This is not what Islam is all about. And I was like, fuck, that's really fascinating. And so we sort of tried to put all this stuff in an entertaining suspense thriller drama with Sleeper Cell. And um, we really lucked out in this way with Showtime because I was telling the story just recently – at that period, Showtime was sort of a distant second in the cable world to HBO. But HBO had just lost all their big shows. The Sopranos was gone. Sex and the City was gone. Six Feet Under was gone. So suddenly, 
Showtime had this mandate to like, hey, if we spend a little more money and we do a little more quality and we 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 don't shoot out everything in Canada and we we actually really get serious, we have a shot to seriously compete with HBO because all their big shows have left the air. And so we lucked out in our timing when we walked into Showtime with this incredibly edgy, ambitious idea that a lot of people thought we were crazy to even pitch this. Nobody's going to put this on the air. Showtime was sort of the right place at the right time because they saw this was like, hmm. And I always remember when we made the pilot to Sleeper Cell and we did a test screening, Showtime executives were ecstatic because they did this test screening for an audience and they asked everybody in the focus group what network they thought had made this show. And everybody said, oh, this is HBO. This is an HBO series. (laughs) (laughs) And Showtime was like, yes, we finally did a show that people think should be on HBO. (laughs) They were very excited by that. Um, It it ended up that relationship ended up being very much a win-win because it was great for us. They took a chance on on our somewhat extreme or unconventional, uh, you know, show. And it did pay off for them because, you know, there was like New York Times editorials about the show. And like you were you mentioned before, the show garnered lots and lots of award nominations and maybe won like one or two awards. And it helped. It just helped to further legitimize Showtime as as like an A-list you know, TV drama uh, player in in the same league as HBO. We were we were at the exact same. We started the same season for them, so to speak. I don't I don't know. There really was a season, but the same year as Weeds, and Weeds was what sort of like made the big impact for them. I guess on the more comedy or dramedy side, and and we made something of an impact. You know, critically speaking. We made a real impact on the drama side. Unfortunately, we didn't make as big of an impact, you know, on the commercial success side, which there's various reasons, you know, we could uh, ascribe that to. But so we only lasted for two seasons, but we we the two of us were very happy with those two seasons. We were very it was backbreaking work for us, but it was also very uh, fulfilling and and we felt very proud proud of it yeah it was it was definitely i I just want to jump in and say it's funny because ethan talks about the commercial thing that yeah the show was never a commercial success i think it was it was ahead of its time it was too edgy it was too raw people didn't want to see didn't want to see something about terrorism that was so realistic i think that's why 24 was so big because it was like a fantasy I, I, my favorite story about that is that we had a um, about sort of the I, I would say the undeclared rivalry with with uh, Twenty Four and Sleeper Cell. Um, we had a uh, there was a guy that we worked with who did some graphics. Who did like the computer graphics, you know, when like you go on the when you go on the FBI computer and there's all these graphics about what's happening. The guy that created those graphics worked on Sleeper Cell. He also worked on Twenty Four. And he told us this story because the New York Times had uh, the review, the first review for Sleeper Cell that came out in the New York Times. The headline was 
sleeper cell is better than 24. And that was the headline, right? And then it went on to be very positive review. And uh, this guy who worked on both shows told the story that in the, uh, the coffee room, some disgruntled employee at 24 had cut out the New York Times review and blown it up and pasted it on the board in the coffee room. Sleeper Cell is better than 24. <laughs> and apparently, one of the producers of 24 walked in, saw that, and said, Sleeper Cell, I got a seven-figure deal, and ripped it off the wall <laughs> and, it and threw it in the trash. And that really is basically, you know, 24 were all the guys with seven-figure deals, and then we were doing Sleeper Cell. And that sort of, like, I, I epitomized the, the situation. But, uh, yeah, no, it was a really uh, – it was a terrific – and we're still actually friends with most of the actors, producers, technical advisors. It was a real special show to work on and, again, a real benchmark in our careers. And, again, we – it was weird. It's like – sort of like being in the army it's like you go through this experience and then you're sort of friends with these people for life so we sort of have that similar relationship with a lot of people who worked on that show so it was a unique show in more ways than one because it ran each night over the course of two weeks uh instead of your regular weekly format so was this a conscious decision from the off or was it something that was arrived at later on what was the reasoning behind the decision that as i recall i mean it wasn't a conscious decision from the off as you uh, as you well put it um it was it was a decision an in-house decision by like the programming and marketing teams at showtime as a strategy for how to have like the greatest impact and grab the biggest audience you know i i guess they felt like it was and again, I'm I'm not saying this myself. I'm saying what their opinion was at the time. It was so compelling. And, you know, the sort of like inherent cliffhanger nature of the episodes was such that maybe they'd be able, by by putting it out that way, they just get the audience to keep tuning back in night after night after night. And also it would be, it wouldn't have to compete when it was time to compete with uh, with its rivals or contemporaries or whatever, it wouldn't have to compete with like all those A-list amazing HBO shows. It would just be competing with like the miniseries or the limited series, you know, for awards, which would sort of like raise raise our chances. Um, which was an interesting. It was an interesting strategy, you know. Looking back on it, on that those decisions or that decision from here and now. I, I don't know that it was, you know, particularly brilliant or particularly significant. I don't know that it helped one way or the other um, or, or hurt us in terms of gaining a wider audience. Probably it didn't help us too much with gaining a wider audience because, you know, I mean, we did okay. We had a decent audience. We had a large enough audience to get a second season order, but um, it, it, it wasn't something that stuck in the premium cable world the idea of releasing something that way. The only thing related to that I can think of now looking back would be like binge watching, you know, streaming shows. Like when Netflix started releasing shows and every episode comes out of once you can watch them all. Hmm. That's, that's sort of like the next level of what Showtime was trying to do when they released our show. But in our case, it, it didn't have the same kind of uh, profound, you know, positive. But it's funny when Ethan says audience. that, 
I circle back around. You're right. It was the it was they were running them all because the big thing Netflix started doing is like we're literally dropping all the episodes at once. So you can watch the whole season. That's sort of what Sleeper Cell did. And again, into this theme of being ahead of its time. That's another thing that Sleeper Cell did that was sort of ahead of its time. <laughs> and mm. I don't think the audience had caught on to that yet. It was sort of like, because again, it's an era where television shows, you, it took a while for shows to catch on. Even 24 wasn't a hit out of the gate, you know? Um, so it was an interesting strategy, but again, I think uh, a strategy that uh, the audience wasn't really there for yet. And just as you're getting into it, we are going to take a break for one more week with the finale of this interview coming next week. And you don't want to miss it, as well as the nominate five from Cyrus Forrest and Ethan Reef. But in the meantime, we need a nominate five for this week. Now's the time to nominate five. Nominate five. Yes, nominate five. Ah, yes. Nominate five. That amazing part of the show, apparently, where we talk about either our five most favorite things. But we're going to do a bit of a twist this week because uh, you got me last week. Yes. And you really got me unprepared as well. And uh, I hate you for it. So this week I'm going to let you talk about something that's going to trigger you instead. All right, then. And because you are the gamer, I thought I would cater to your gaming knowledge and your love of games. And I'm going to ask you to nominate five of the worst movie game movie to game. <laughs> so these are the games oh, made of movies that are shockingly shit. Maybe they're just cash-ins because a movie is coming out. They're shoddy. They're terrible. They're the worst things on the market. What are they, Steve? We are going to count down from five. Oh, wow. Right. There are so many. And I mean so, so many. Oh, um, yes, there are. I Jesus Christ. I don't even know where to start with this. Well, we start at number five. So um, we're going to go from there. Okay. Um I think anyone that's listening to this who has any kind of inkling about video game conversions will probably know exactly what it is that's going to be at number one. We'll get there. <laughs> I do actually wish I had had more time to prepare this. Um, nah, nah. God, there's so many. I don't, I don't know where to begin. Okay, um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to play a little bit fast and loose with this. Is that you that, dropped it? That's on what me. she said. Hey, um. During the 80s and 90s in particular, there was a company called Ocean, uh, based oh, yes. right here in Manchester, and their whole deal was to just go out and get hold of as many, many movie IPs as possible. And so that's why you have things like um, Hook and uh, Lethal Weapon springs to oh, mind. Oh, God, the scroll long shooter. Oh, yeah. I based, remember that game. If it was made by Ocean, it was shat out to hit deadline. So you had things like the Adams Family as well. That was another one. That one seemed to do all right, but they were always usually very, very basic. This They were more or less palette swap sprites. So at number five, I'm going to go for anything that was made by Ocean during no, the 80s come on, and no. 90s. No, no, no. no you, we... you can't bunch a load in. That is cheating. Yeah, the reason that I'm doing that is because a number of them were just literal palette swaps. 
they right. would take a character and they'd just swap the backgrounds out with something else, but the actual platforming would be the same. The character movement would be the same. You might be like shooting a gun in one game and then the next game it was like a wizard's wand or something like that. It was the same thing. So Can you name just one? What palette swaps? Well well just one for motion in particular. Okay, if I have to nail anything down for motion, I probably am going to go with the Lethal Weapon game, because that's stank. Okay, yeah, that's fair enough. That was awful. Um, the movie tie-in has more or less gone the way of the dodo these days. So, number four. Uh, okay, let's go with uh, the, the Japanese version of Star Wars on the NES. Oh, okay. Yeah, which... Firstly, the game itself was was pretty difficult. The Super Star Wars Star Wars games they were really like monstrously difficult. But right. this thing was not only difficult; it was weird as well. Yeah, like like for example, towards the end of the game, you end up fighting Darth Vader, and Darth Vader ends up turning into a giant scorpion. He he somehow has the oh. ability to shape shift out of nowhere. Which was insane. So, okay, I'm going to put that in number four. Uh, number three, I'm probably going to go back in time a little bit further here. Um, probably just think of something like, like let's go for like the the, the old school versions of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark that came out on the, um, the Atari. Because, yeah, you can't really pin down gameplay that existed back then to gameplay that existed now but you are looking at a game that was chunky and clunky with horrible graphics where where something that was apparently Indiana Jones but you had to like properly squint was on screen and it moved around and it responded so in terms of actual gameplay wise it wasn't as bad as some of the others but just the fact that this thing is supposed to be Harrison Ford is just ridiculous. Looks nothing like him. Right. <laughs> All right. Um, Where are we at now? Number three? No, that was number three. So, number two. Going to go with, uh, with one which I also love, but I also hate the fact that I love it. Right. It's, it, it, is, it is a bad game. It is shockingly bad at a technical level, but... I still actually quite like it, and that's going to be Enter the Matrix. Oh right, okay. Yeah, I have played this. Yeah, it's not. It's not a good game. Just the, the fact that all the characters are basically walking around with their hands flat. <laughs> you know, they they kind of they kind of they're walking through a scene, and the hands are there with the fingers and thumb kind of splayed out. There is a loading scene pretty much every ten seconds. As it yeah. moves on to the next area, which slows down the combat. It's really buggy. There's so much filler in there that it just feels like it, half of the game could easily be cut out. And you'd end up with a much better finished article. It's worth it to see all those extra little cutscenes that were designed to tie in between Flight of the Osiris and The Matrix Reloaded. But realistically, you're best off just getting those separate i think they're on one of the dvds where you can just see them separate and just leaving the basic game alone saying that though wall running's fun the actual gunplay's fun if ultimately it gets quite repetitive path of neo is a much much better game and you actually get to play as neo 
Because that's yeah. the other thing with this one. You don't get to play as any of the main cast. It's just this ancillary kind of side characters which didn't mean anything apart from Niobe when the movies came out. Absolutely right. okay. none of it made any sense. So, okay, that's going to be number two. Don't think that really deserves to be number two, but like you'd say, I am properly on the spot this time. I'm having to pull these out of my arse. So can I take a guess what number one is? Number one is not the worst video game of all time, regardless of what people say. There are far worse things out there. There are some shockingly abhorrent pieces of digital media out there. Uh, Games such as Ethnic Cleansing. Uh, Uh, Okay. Yeah, which is as bad as it sounds. Uh, Columbine RPG, which, yeah, is based on the Columbine Yeah. We're talking like the horrible of horrible here. Um, so there's far worse, far, far worse actual video games out there. But if we're focusing specifically on movie tie-ins, it has to be E.T. It has uh, to be ne- the daddy. There yeah. is no way they could not be simply because it is such a shockingly bad piece of media. It's right. There, There is a documentary out there, if anyone's interested, I can't remember what it's on, I think it's on Netflix, called um, Atari Game Over. Yes, Atari Game Over, yeah, yeah, I have seen that. Well worth watching, and it, it looks at the myth of the making of the E.T. video game, um, how it was created in about uh, six, seven weeks, weeks, by one guy called that, that's uh, Howard Scott quite a turnaround. Warshaw which is an incredible turnaround. Steven Spielberg signed off on it, just as he did do with the Indiana Jones game. Um, And it's a shocking game in its own right. It's astonishing it got made, considering the time crunch it was under, but it was a shocking game in its own right. Um, But to actually be a tie-in and to be one of the games that finally started to properly break the back of the industry back in the early 80s, it's, it's a terrible piece of software. But like I say, there are far, far worse out there, both in terms of the technical aspects and of its actual content. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, there we go. I probably could have done better if I had a little bit more time. But uh, but no, no, that just got launched on me. And now as soon as I've finished this recording, I'm going to be thinking, damn, I should have said this one. I should have said that one. Damn, damn. Well, save it for uh, the next time you get pulled up on games. Hmm. But, you know, I, I had to get some kind of revenge on you for uh, making me revisit my feelings towards Rambo Last Blood last week. I'm going to buy you that for Christmas. And I will throw it at you. Hmm. Okay. So, well, um, yeah. now that that's over with, I, I guess, well, it's the everyone's favourite part of the show, right? Yes. The bit where we all nearly say goodbye. Yes. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? No, it's not E.T., but Steve is going to tell us what's in the box. Yes, what is in the box are actually lots and lots of bits of paper. And on those bits of paper is a movie that has been certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and Andy's going to pull one out of a box. Now, if I have seen it, he's going to keep on pulling titles out of a box until we find one that I haven't seen, and then I'm going to go away and watch that the day before we record our next episode. Will he like it? Will he hate it? We don't know until the beginning of the next show, but I have dug 
this out, and this is a bizarre coincidence. Um, okay. Yeah, it's it's more in relation to when we were talking about once on the last episode. Was it the last episode? Yes. Yeah, it the was last, last episode. Um, I've pulled out the movie Before Sunrise. Right, you did mention this. It was that what um what what the the di- I'm sorry, I can't remember what the name of the director was. You said that no, 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 no. Afterwards. It wasn't. It wasn't John Carney. No. Uh, this was directed by Richard Linklater. Okay. Uh, this is a beautiful movie uh, where Ethan Hawke meets uh, a girl played by Julie Delpy on a train. And basically, you know, they, they have a bit of a conversation. Now, we don't actually kind of really see that conversation. This happens towards the end. But as he's getting off the train, he comes back on and says, I've got this crazy idea. I really like talking with you. She really likes talking with me. Get off this train with me now. And let's walk around Paris together and get to know each other until the last train. And okay. The, and the movie is, it's a beautiful movie. It, very much in the vein of Once, but without the music. And uh, since all you liked Once, I think you'll actually like this. And it's got some very lush um, Paris settings in it. So get a lot of culture there. When um, did the film come out? Oh, sorry. When did the film come out? Yeah. It was 2007. No, it wasn't. It was, 19... <laughs> it was 1995. Oh, okay. All right. So, one, it's, it's something a bit different. Two, it's something which seems like it's got a little bit of heart to it. And three, it isn't from 2007. Okay. Yes, it's got a lot of heart to it. And it's the first part of a trilogy. They've, they've filmed every decade since they've caught up with the same two characters and done another movie. So you're kind of tracing, you know, their uh, their lives, but I'm not going to give away the story. You can actually just go and watch it and report on it next week. Okay then, right? Before sunrise coming next week. So, uh, yeah, that's next week. Uh, thank you very much to everyone who has tuned in. Thank you, Belgium. <laughs> that's that's. I'm going to get a T-shirt that just says "Thank you, Belgium." Yep. For uh, for being our our biggest listening pool, other than the US. And, uh, yeah, well, I'm going to bed now. I've got shitloads of work to do, so. And I'm going to go to bed as well because, yeah, why not? So, with that in mind, it is a goodbye from me. And I'll see you next week also. Bye. Bye. That was the best timed meow I've ever heard in my life. Brilliant. That's staying in. That's staying in.